This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. First out of the gate tonight is a visit with Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Now, to be very honest with you, the very best comedy team, in my humble opinion, was Laurel and Hardy. I'm still a huge fan of Stan and Ollie. I was even a member of the local fan club here in Toronto, the Tit for Tat Club. It's been many years since I attended a meeting of the Sons of the Desert Club, and in fact, I don't know if they still exist, but I can tell you the meetings were a riot. Let me quote from the official constitution for the Sons of the Desert. The annual meeting shall be conducted in the following sequence. A. Cocktails. B. Business meeting and cocktails. C. Dinner with cocktails. D. After-dinner speeches and cocktails. E. Well, I'm sure you get the idea. They eventually showed a Laurel and Hardy film and had a discussion with, of course, more cocktails. Okay, so here's my plug for Laurel and Hardy. And I just discovered there's a fan club for the second funniest comedy team. Just write to Abbott and Costello Fan Club, Post Office Box 2084, Toluca Lake, California. They offer a quarterly newsletter and a 24-hour hotline. (laughs) I don't know about the drinks. Hot diggity. Okay, now to the second funniest comedy team, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. The team's first known radio broadcast was on the Kate Smith Hour, February 3rd of 1938. Now, at first, the similarities between their voices made it difficult for radio listeners, as opposed to stage audiences, to tell them apart during their rapid-fire repartee. And as a result, Costello affected a high-pitched, childish voice. Now, I'm sure you've heard or have seen their most memorable routine, Who's On First? Throughout their career... They parlayed that sketch into many routines. For instance, tonight, we're going to hear the boys give another version of Who's On First, but this time using a nut and bolt factory as the gimmick for twisted words and meaning. So, here we go back to 1947, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. That's right, folks. C for comedy, A for Abbott, M for Maxwell, E for Ennis, L for Lou Costello. Put them all together and they spell camel. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before. And draw up a chair for tonight's camel show, starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Costello. Costello, come over here. 
Hey, by the way, what were you doing at Universal International Studios this morning? Oh, I had to take my pet flies over there. You took flies to a picture studio? What for? To get them a screen test? I, I... <laughs> you idiot. Who, who was that redheaded... Hey, no. Who was that redheaded girl that was with you? Oh, she's been chasing after me for years, Abbott. I call her Pilot Light. Pilot Light? Yeah, she's an old flame that stayed lit. <laughs> but she's a lovely girl, Abbott. She's very social. Uh, does she have... Uh, does... <laughs> Does she have good connections, Lou? I beg your pardon? Does she have good connections? Well, she never fell apart while I was with her. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> I'm talking about her connections. Her, her associates. Does she belong to the Junior League? Belong to the Junior League? No, she belongs to the Coast League. She used to pitch for the San Francisco Seals. Pastel, uh, I'm talking about the Junior League. Society. Has she come out yet? Has she made her debut? Her what? Her debut? Oh, sure. Every time she comes out, they boo. <laughs> they boo, all right. They say, boo, all get right, in the right, house. Right. Hey, but she's very, she's very high tone, Abbott. What do you mean? She was born in the south of England. Oh, I see. Her family came from Wales. Her family came from Wales? Yes. I so, thought her conversation sounded a little fishy. Oh, talk sense, <laughs> please. Wales, Wales is part of England. That means they're English people. Now, uh... What does her father do, Louis? He's got a big diplomatic job with a bakery. A diplomatic job in a bakery? Yeah, in Helm's Bakery. He's a British advisor to the English crumpets. All right. <laughs> well, forget, forget about her father. What, is, what does she do? What does she do? Yes. Well, she weighs 250 pounds, and she's got a big job as a sand hog. Now, how could a woman be a sand hog? She sits around the beach all day and hogs the sand. Now, <laughs> sounds like quite a family. Are they wealthy? Wealthy? Abbott, they got a chateau in France, a villa in Switzerland, a castle in Spain, and a hacienda in Mexico. Uh, where do they live? In a Quonset hut in Glendale. <laughs> <laughs> You're wasting your time with these people. Uh, why don't you get yourself a good job? I had a good job once, Abbott. I worked for a foot doctor. I used to put bird seed in people's shoes. Bird seed in people's shoes? Sure, that keeps their pigeon toes away from their corn. Uh, <laughs> Look, Castell, I'm only trying to help you. Look, why don't you listen to me? You can change. I used to be dumb like you once. I was ignorant, stupid, and ugly. And do you know what, what caused the change... What change? I, uh... <laughs> them. There must be somewhere to get you a job. Wait a minute. I've got it. I'll speak to Harry Ridoff about you. Wait a minute. Good, Better good. still, I'll have my brother get you a job where he works at the Nut and Bolt Factory. Your brother works in the Nut and Bolt Factory? Yes. What's he doing there? Nothing. Nothing? You just said he's working. Yeah, he is working. Doing what? Nothing. And he gets paid for doing nothing? Oh, certainly. Yeah, but if I get a good job at the Nut and Bolt Factory, what would I be doing? Nothing. Now you're talking. That's the kind of job I want. <laughs> you idiot. Nutting is hard work. My brother puts in eight hours a day, five days a week. Doing nothing? That's right. Look, Abbott, your brother works in the Nutton Bull Factory. Yes. Are you sure he don't do nothing besides nothing? Well, so, sometimes he works in the foundry department. Then he forges steels. How do you like that? He ain't satisfied getting paid for doing nothing. Now he forges and steals. <laughs> Abbott, your brother is a crook. He is not a crook. Definitely. He's worked hard all his life. Before he worked in the nut and bolt factory, he worked in a rope factory. What's he doing in a rope factory? Nothing. Well, that's different. I mean, he did. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did you say he was doing in a rope factory? Nothing. Nothing. This guy's been getting away with murder. So far, he's had two jobs up to now. He's been doing nothing and nothing. Costello, listen to me, and I'll try to explain it so that even you can understand. Thank you. The rope factory makes tennis nets. What? Nets, nets. And nets to you, too. Now, listen, you idiot. My brother made tennis nets. The nets are tied together with nuts, and my brother does nodding. Just a second, Abbott. When did your brother start nodding? 
Nutting? Mm. Oh, about three years ago. And what's she doing now? I told you, nutting. Look, up to now you told me less than that. You said your brother did nothing for three years, and now he's doing nothing. When is he going to start doing something? He is doing something. What? Nutting. Nutting or something? <laughs> well, Lavin, one of us is nuts. Don't your brother get tired of doing nothing? Oh, of course. When he gets tired, he takes a vacation. What does he do on his vacation? Nothing. <laughs> now, there is a pretty picture. This guy does nothing for three years, but doing nothing is too tough for him, so he gets a new job doing nothing. Then he gets tired of doing nothing, so he takes a vacation and does nothing. Now you've got it. Well, if I got it, I caught it from you. <laughs> you light up a camel, Skinny Anna sings, my number one dream came true. A million times a day, I pinch myself and say, my number one dream came true. And if I rub my eyes, it's only in surprise, my number one dream came true. I had my number two and three and four dreams. With lots of possibilities in each I might have planned on dreaming even more dreams Cause number one was way beyond me I can't believe it yet But if my fate was set It did what I wanted to Don't ask me when or why or how But if I'm here with you My number one dream came true Number two and three and four dreams With lots of possibilities in each I might have planned on dreaming even more dreams Cause number one was way beyond reach I can't believe it yet But if my faith was set It did what I'd wanted to Don't ask me when or why or how but if I'm here with you, my number one dream came true. Pastello, it's time for you to start thinking of the future. Why don't you get a good job? Be industrious. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Save your money, and in ten years you can retire, and you won't have to work, Lou. Why should I go through all that? I'm not working now. <laughs> I don't believe you ever had a job. Oh, a guy's a sucker to work, Abbott. All you gotta do is go on one of those quiz programs. The other night, my aunt May won $9,000 in cash, a refrigerator, two washer machines, and a brand new house. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, and she was one of the losers. I, uh... <laughs> Pastella, please. Aren't you interested in betting yourself? Why don't you find an honest job? 
What, and quit radio? I don't <laughs> Why don't you look at the ads in the paper and find a job for yourself? Oh, I got a job all picked out, Abbott You have? I saw an ad in the funny papers It said sell 24 bottles of Chief Schmo's spot remover and get a magic lantern free I can also win the $500 grand prize by selling 175 million bottles Oh, Costello, there are only 130 million people in the United States So what? I got friends in Mexico uh, <laughs> Well, now wait a minute Selling spot remover is better than doing nothing at all. Come on, let's go over and see this Chief Schmoe. Well, here it is, Costello. See the sign on the door? Chief Schmoe's Indian Remedy Company. Spot remover, Indian tonic, scalp treatments, and Tommy Hawk sharpen. Yeah. Well, come on, let's go in. Well, good morning, gentlemen. As the Santa Fe train said to the freight train, I am the chief. <laughs> Costello, hey, this guy don't look like an Indian to me Sure he is, I can tell by the way he's dressed He's wearing an arrow collar and a bow tie Get it? Bow and arrow Get your pictures, Mid-Abbott I'm pitching them in there tonight Quiet, Costello, <laughs> uh, Chief Schmo, my friend Costello read your ad in the funny papers And he'd like to try selling your spot remover Well, to be a Chief Schmo salesman, Costello You'll have to have fire in your voice You've got to glow with feeling, blaze with personality. What do you want, a salesman or a blowtorch? <laughs> Gee, do you think Costello can handle his job? Costello, we'll have to fill out this application form. I'll read the questions, and when they apply to you, just answer yes. Were you a college graduate? Were you a high school graduate? Were you a grammar school graduate? Were you born? <laughs> well, I'll turn the form over on the other side and see if it goes any lower. <laughs> Costello, our personnel is highly restricted, specially selected. We demand the highest qualifications. What makes you think you can be a cheap schmo salesman? When I saw your ad in the funny papers? Oh, good. For a while, I didn't think you had the qualification. <laughs> now, before you go out to sell cheap schmo's spot remover, I want to give you a few pointers about being a door-to-door -door salesman. I don't want to be a door salesman. Who wants to sell doors? I want to sell spot remover. No, young man, when I say you sell door-to-door, -door, I don't mean you sell doors. I mean that you sell spot remover, even though you're selling door-to-door. -door. How do you like that? Now the Indians aren't doing our routine. <laughs> now, Costello, when a housewife tries to slam the door on you, make sure your foot is in the way. But my foot might get hurt. In your case, stick your head in the door. <laughs> now, here's your 24 bottles of spot remover in your sample case. Sell these and you get the magic lantern. Uh, wait a minute. Let me get this right, Chief. If Costello sells uh, the 24 bottles in one day, he not only gets the magic lantern, but also a special prize? That is correct. Mm -hmm. This week we have a very valuable prize. A genuine 12-foot pole. 12-foot pole? What's that for? That's for girls you can't touch with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> get going and sell that spot remote. <laughs> hey, Costello... There's a woman right over there, Costello. Why don't you make her your first customer? Okay, that's a good idea. Uh, pardon me, miss. Well, if it isn't Mr. Orbit oh, and Mr. Costello, oh. you fought little man, you. Uh, Costello, is, Costello is selling spot remover. Oh, fine. I'd love to patronize him, but I'm very busy. I'm on my way to Arm G. Arm Studios. Uh, uh, Arm G. Arm Studios? <laughs> Why, Abbott, you heard of Arm G. Arm Studios. That's where they make pictures with Clark Goobel, <laughs> Luna Tuna, and Mookie Rooney. Did you ever... Uh... 
Yes, yes, I did. Did you ever opt at Om Giam with sponsor Trucy? <laughs> no, but I was a coup boy at Republic with Rui Rouges. <laughs> And a wad of busted bubble gum and a kisser to you, too. Hiya, fellas. Well, hey, excuse me, Costello's selling spot remover. Would you like to buy some? No, thanks. I don't need any. Oh, you don't, eh? You certainly do. Look at the stains on your necktie. I can tell everything you had for lunch. Shrimp, clam chowder, lamb chops, and coffee. Why, there's only one clean spot on your whole necktie. I know. I'm saving that for dessert. <laughs> Never mind him, Costello. Hey, look. Here comes Marilyn Maxwell. Oh, Louis, the most wonderful thing has happened. I've just been chosen California's queen of the orange grove. Marilyn, can I be your smudge pot? <laughs> oh, Louis, you're so cute. Marilyn, can I come over to your house tonight? Not tonight, Louis. I'm washing my dog. How about tomorrow night? Well, tomorrow night I'm taking my dog to the dog show. Uh, how about Saturday night? Saturday night I'm busy. What's your dog doing? Uh, Marilyn, Costello's selling spot removal. Would you like to buy a bottle? Well, is it any good? Oh, sure, that's my line. Certainly it's good. I'll show you. Ooh, there's a little spot on your dress. Now I soak my handkerchief with a spot remover and rub it on your dress. <laughs> Don't just stand there, Abbott. Throw a blanket around her. <laughs> You've ruined my dress. Goodbye. Well, Costello, you certainly lost Marilyn for a customer. Well, come on. Let's go in here to Mrs. Wetwash's house. Oh, hello, Mr. Abbott. Oh, my. I wonder who left that garbage can on my front stoop. <laughs> oh, pardon me. That's Costello. Mrs. Wetwash, we don't want to bother you if you have company. Company? Why, I'm here all alone. Then who are those two people looking over your shoulder? Oh, pardon me, that's your ears. Uh... <laughs> quiet, Costello, quiet, quiet. It's Mrs. Wetwash, Costello's selling uh, spot remover. Uh, uh, what, Punta? Uh, he's selling spot remover. Selling it? Yeah. He ought to drink some of it. <laughs> drink spot remover? Spot remover? Oh, I thought you said pot remover. <laughs> Now get out of here before I slam the door on you Come on, Costello, come on Okay No, no, we can't Remember what Chief Schmo said? If a woman tries to close the door, stick your head in it Go ahead, slam the door, Mrs. Wetwash All right <laughs> Mrs. Wetwash, you've slammed the door on Costello's head Oh, I oh you poor little man I'll buy all your spot remover, every bottle I'll stroke your head until the swelling goes down And then I'll put my arms around you Cuddle you close to me and I'll kiss you and kiss you and kiss you and kiss you <laughs> Costello, can you hear me? Yes, yeah, slam the door on my head again <laughs> Marilyn Maxwell from Metro Golden Mayor, producers of Sea of Grass. And here's Marilyn to sing for camel fans everywhere. There is no greater love than what I feel for you. No greater love, no heart so true. There is no greater thrill than what you bring to me. 
No sweeter song than what you sing to me. You're the sweetest thing I have ever known. And to think that you are mine alone. There is no greater love in all the world, it's true. No greater love than what I feel for you. You sold all the spot remover. Now let's go into here to Chief Schmo's office and give him the money and get your magic lantern. Good morning. Whom do you wish to see? I'd like to see Chief Schmo. I'm sorry, he's busy now. He's holding a powwow. A what? Powwow! 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 I can hear you. There's a dog barking somewhere. Quiet, <laughs> Costello. Here comes the chief. Ah, oh, gentlemen, as Michelangelo said to Venus de Milo, I see your back. Um. <laughs> Costello sold all the spot remover, Chief. And he's here to get his magic lantern. What? He sold all that junk? Uh, I mean, that uh, spot remover? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as Lippy DeRosia said when speaking of his new bride, what a day. <laughs> <laughs> and as Lippy DeRosia said to Happy Chandler, what, a year? <laughs> If you don't mind, Chief, just give uh, Costello's magic lantern and we'll be going. Uh, that, 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 not so fast, boys. By selling that spot remover, Costello was only qualified for the magic lantern. Now all he has to do is help me sell 980 bottles of Schmo's Indian water. I can sell anything. I even sold insurance. I sold Lana Turner some sweater insurance. I sold Dorothy Lamore some sarong insurance. I even sold Gypsy Rose Lee insurance, too. Wait a minute. <laughs> what did Gypsy Rose Lee have insured? These Indians lead sheltered lives, don't they? <laughs> she took full coverage. Uh, wait a minute. Why should this boy have to sell 980 bottles of Schmo's Indian water? Chief, this sounds like a shady deal. Mr. Abbott, there's $50 in it for you if you can get Costello to help me. Oh, that's different. Uh, Costello, I think it's a splendid idea. Wait a minute, Now, Abbott. now, now. Wait a minute. You just said it was a shady deal. The smog cleared up pretty fast, didn't it? <laughs> Chief, what, is this, uh, what does this Indian water do? Schmoe's Indian water is the elixir of youth. It takes years off your life. Why, Al Jolson took one teaspoonful, and do you know what happened? Larry Parks. <laughs> yeah, come with me. Come into the laboratory and meet the Indians who make Schmoe's Indian water. 
This is our head chemist. Me, Big Brave. We're Abbott and Costello. You ever listen to our radio program? Me, not that brave. <laughs> Mr. Brave, Brave, I dabble in chemistry myself. Listen to this. H2O2S3. What's that? Ethyl alcohol. Then there's H1SO5. What's that? Ethyl chloride. Then there's HI2183. What's that? Ethel Schultz. That's her phone number. <laughs> if a man answers, that's the wrong formula. <laughs> now, this is where we make the famous Schmoe's Indian water that brings back you. This big Indian fills that pot with herbs, his squaw stirs the mixture all day long, and at night when it's finished, elixir! Elixir? <laughs> elixir? Right. Now there's gratitude for you. The poor squaw sits all day over a hot fire stirring that pot. Then at night, this Indian comes along and gives her a beating. Uh, what are you talking about? I'm going to report this to the police, Abbott. Beating that poor woman. Costello, nobody's getting a beating. He just said a squaw stirs the pot all day. Then at night, this Indian comes along and elixir. What's, the, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it? Nobody's going to hit the squaw when I'm around. If he licks her tonight, I'll have to lick me. He'll have to lick me, too. Well, look, when he that. says elixir, he don't mean he licks her. He means elixir, and elixir is a name. Well, why didn't you say so? I know her very well. She works for Warner Brothers. Who works for Warner Brothers? Elixir Smith. Oh, you idiot. <laughs> this elixir is a tonic. It makes you feel young. It's it's a, a pick-me-up. It's a what? Pick-me-up. Okay. Ah, put me down, you idiot. You just asked me to pick you up. I did not. I said pick-me-up. And now put me down. But make up your mind <laughs> Well, gentlemen, we're ready to go Hop into the truck and we'll make our pitch in an empty lot And sell the 980 bottles of Schmoe's Elixir of Life Hey, Costello, Costello Look at that crowd of people coming to buy Chief Schmoe's Elixir of Youth Go ahead and make your pitch Okay Hiya, babe Gee, you're cute What are you doing tonight? Uh oh, wrong pitch. Wrong pitch. Boys, boys, I'll make the pitch. And Costello, Costello, you sell the medicine, and remember, back up everything I say. Yes, Yes, remember that, Costello. Anything the chief says, you back him up. I get it. Friends, I am Chief Smoke. Anyone that drinks Smoke's Indian water can be young forever. It takes years off your life. Look at me. I am 239 years old. I've been drinking this water since I was a young man. I've worn out four Schaefer Lifetime pens. Look at me. 239 years old. Friends, the medicine is one dollar a bottle. My assistant will pass among you. Go ahead, Costello. Okay. Schmoe's Indian water, one dollar a bottle. How about you, lady? I'll take one. But, young man, is that Indian really 239 years old? Couldn't prove it by me, lady. I've only been with him 146 years. (laughs) All right, you fat faker. I'm an officer of the Lord. How long did you say you were working for that Indian? I'm going to apply for the job tomorrow morning. <laughs> That's enough of that. Into the patrol wagon with you. Ah, just a minute, off. I'll vouch for my friend here. You see, Costello was told to say he was 146 years old. Well, Costello will be 146 years old by the time he gets out of jail. Into the patrol wagon with the both of you. <laughs> well, Costello, you... You certainly got us in a fine mess this time. Don't bore me out, Abbott. I've been through too much already. I'm tired and I'm thirsty. Thirsty? I know. I'll drink a couple of bottles of Chief Schmoe's Elixir of Youth. Costello. Costello. Don't drink that junk. That that stuff is a... Costello, where are you? Yeah, I guess, Abbott. Right here. Costello. Costello, I I don't see you. All I see is is a fat little boy. Abbott. That stuff works. The fat little boy is me. Costello, this is wonderful. They can't prosecute a child. 
When we get to the station house, I'll jump out of the patrol wagon, wagon and run. Then you, you, you turn, when I turn you loose, I mean, you come right home to here. Bye-bye, Yabba. All right, you crooks, come out of that wagon. There ain't no crooks in here, Mr. Brickman. Only with a maid. You! How many times did I tell you kids not to hitch rides on the patrol wagon? Don't you know it's wrong to do a thing like that? Why? Why do you always do these things? Oh, I'm a bad boy! Well, Costello... Next week is the opening of the baseball season. Yes, it'll be a great week for my Uncle Artie Stebbins. You know, he was a famous baseball player. He played and played till he got so old he couldn't tell a ball from a strike. And then what happened? They made him an umpire. Uh, good night, folks. Good night, everybody. Costello again next Thursday when Costello gets a telegram from Joe DiMaggio which leads the boys into their famous baseball routine. Tune in next week and you might find out who's on first. Be sure to tune in next week for another great Abbott and Costello show brought to you by Camel Cigarettes. And remember, experience is the best teacher. Try a camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before. C-A-M- B-L-S. Abbott and Costello will soon be seen in the new Universal International picture, Buck Privates Come Home. This is Michael Roy in Hollywood wishing you all a pleasant good night for Camel. <laughs> Stay tuned now for the Eddie Cantor Show. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Stay tuned for Escape, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Escape, and the episode first aired in 1947, entitled Confession. You are lost in a London fog, uncertain whether the figures looming around you are real or creatures of your imagination. And somewhere in the wet grayness lurks a murderer from whom you must escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight... We escape to a fog-shrouded city and the terror of a shell-shocked mind, as Algernon Blackwood describes them in his ghostly story, Confession. There was no doubt about it. The woman was dead. Her cheek was cold to my touch. The head of the long, sharp hat pin protruded from her breast above the heart. She was dead. Murdered. And I stood there by the bed, my brain whirling crazily. I was alone in an empty house with a murdered woman. And then suddenly fear flashed across my brain and cleared it. I heard the door below open and close. Footsteps. Someone was coming across the downstairs hall. Onto the stairs. Coming up. Up here. In a moment I would be discovered. 
In a moment, someone would walk into this room and see me standing over the body. In a moment, my escape would be cut off. Quickly, I slipped across the hall and into another of the empty bedrooms. I leaned against the closed door, breathing heavily, listening to those steps come closer. Would he look into any of the other bedrooms first? Would I be discovered here? He passed my door and went into the room, straightened, closed the door behind him. Then he knew where to come. I waited a moment, waited for some sound, some gasp of discovery. There was none. Then he knew what to expect. I must escape quickly before he came out of that room. I started down the stairs, carefully, to avoid any sound. And suddenly the door of that room opened. The beam of a flashlight searched down the hall. I took the stairs three at a time, burst open the front door, and fled into the street, fled into the sanctuary of the fog. How long and how far I ran, I do not know. I, I could see nothing, feel nothing but the clammy dampness of the fog. I don't know whether he was still following me or not. I ran out of sheer terror, up one street, down another, with no idea of where I was or where I was going. Perhaps I was running in circles. Perhaps I would run right back to the house. Well, I stopped. I leaned heavily against the wall. My hands were shaking as I raised them to my perspiring face. I held them there to steady them. Ran them through my wet hair. My hat. I didn't have it. I'd left my hat back there in that room. On the bed beside that dead woman. And it had my initials in it. Nearby, a street lamp formed a fuzzy ball of yellow in the enveloping murk. And now a figure loomed suddenly beneath it, just as she had materialized so short a time ago under another street light. Or was it the same one? Was it she again? Was it he, the one who was following me? Was it real at all? Perhaps it was only a creature of my madness. My dear sir, you're ill. I... Oh, hero, uh... oh, let me help you. Why, you're almost ready to fall. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, just lean on my arm. Yes. You are real, aren't you? Real? Huh. I don't understand. I say, you're very near collapse, you know. And I happen to be a doctor. Luckily, too, you're just outside my very house. Come in for a moment, won't you? Why, I... You're very kind. Uh, yes, I will, if it's... Not too much trouble for you? None at all, my dear chap. Please do. Within five minutes, I was seated in a comfortable chair before a toasting fire, sipping a hot cup of tea. I could feel my nerves relaxing, but the traces of my illness must have been clear on my face because my host observed... Your trouble is shell shock, isn't it? Why... Yes, how did you know? I've been in the service, and I'm a doctor. Of course. I, I only meant I'm supposed to be recovered, or almost. But uh, I got lost in the fog, felt ill suddenly. Terrified, you know. I know. You should never have been out on a night like this. If you've got far to go, you better let me put you up. You're very kind, very kind indeed, but I don't want to be any trouble. No trouble at all. I'd like to be of help. The least we veterans can do for each other. 
Ah, oh, the blasted war. Thank goodness it's over. Not English, are you? No, Canadian. I haven't been demobilized yet. I'm still in the army hospital at Regent's Park under the care of Dr. Henry. Ah, oh, yes, yes. Very good man. I'd say he's done well by you. Up till tonight, I mean. Yes. Of course, we had no idea there would be a fog. I still get in a panic when I feel all alone. Well, that's usual, but then there was something more than that tonight, wasn't there? What do you mean? Simply that you've had rather a severe shock quite recently, haven't you? How, how did you know that? My dear chap, I'm a doctor. My business to know. You were in much too agitated a state when I found you for me to suppose it could have been done simply by the fog. And uh, if I may hazard another guess, I should say it would be a relief to you and, and wise as well if you could unburden yourself to someone who would understand. Am I not right? Someone who would understand. That's just it. I doubt if there is anyone like that. It's so incredible. Oh, the more incredible, the greater your need to tell it. Repression in cases like yours can be dangerous, as, as you must know. You think you've hidden it, but it bides its time and it comes up later causing a lot of trouble. Confession, you know. Confession is good for the soul. Yes, I suppose you are right. It is so wildly oh, unbelievable. Since we're strangers, my belief or disbelief can make no difference. And I think I can promise you in advance that I shall believe all you have to say. Well, but I've got to tell somebody about it soon anyway. So <laughs> cigarette uh, to help with telling? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'd better start back at the very beginning of the adventure, then. It started today at the sanitarium. I've been there for some months, and today, when Dr. Henry called to check on me, I... Well, young man, you're as fit as a prize heifer and twice as frisky. The diet here must agree with you. I have no complaints, doctor, but if I'm well again, then I'd like to get back into circulation. Will you listen to him, nurse, rushing things as usual? You'd think he didn't like us here. (laughs) The way he bothers us to let him go into town, I'm sure of it, doctor. He's getting so healthy, he's bursting at the sea. There, you see. How about it, Doctor? Can't I just have a day or an evening in town? What's the great attraction in that dirty place? Some girl, no doubt? Well, yes, that is in a way. I, I met her in France. She's a Red Cross girl. She's invited me to stop in for tea if I'm up in London. And, well, it's just that I'd, I'd feel human again, seeing a girl having tea, a cigarette, chatting... That's all. Young man, I not only approve of your day in town, I'm prescribing it. It'll do you good. You've got to start getting used to society again anyway. And you think I can manage it alone? Why not? You get around the neighborhood by yourself well enough, don't you? There's nothing so very different about London. Certainly nothing to be afraid of. No, of course not. Uh, call the young lady and find out the directions, where to get off the underground, what turns to take and so on. Uh, go in the daytime, return before dark. No danger of getting lost. Should be simple. Nothing to it. Do you good? Then this means I'm getting better. I'll be able to go home soon? There you go. Rushing things again. But yes, I think perhaps we're on the last leg. Well, that'll be all, nurse. Yes, Dr. Henry. Now, tell me, young man, what about your friends? No, doctor. I think they've deserted me. I don't see them anymore. No more ghosts. No more dead comrades stopping in for a chat. Good. For how long now? Oh, several weeks at least. I can hardly remember when I last saw one. Thought you saw. <laughs> yes, thought. Of course, in the dark room at night, sometimes the uh, shadows... That's not are... quite the same thing. 
Lots of well people fancy they see the shadows move at night, especially after they've been reading some penny dreadful. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Uh, at any rate, you can distinguish between the real people and the unreal now, and that's a big step, considering how you were a few months ago. Well, it's only when I feel completely alone, cut off, that the old panic begins a little, but not as much as before. Many people don't like to feel alone and cut off, but they can fight down that panicky feeling, nip it in the bud. So will you in time. But I must warn you, severe shock could undo all our work. By all means, avoid shock. Avoid shock, he said. Very funny, isn't it? But who could have known then what would happen? How could I have suspected as I went about planning my day in town, my holiday? I called the girl, arranged our tea party... I was to be at her little house in Morley Place at four. Well, yes, I'm sure I will. It's near South Kensington Station, then. Exactly. You change at Piccadilly Circus yes. without leaving the underground station and come to South Kent. That's three streets left from there, then two right, one more left, and right again into Morley Place at three not far. Oh, I'll find it all right. Now, don't go to any great bother. Oh, you just leave that to me. This is a special occasion, you know. Till four, then. Until four. Yes. Thanks. And so it all started out as a cheerful adventure. And everything went well into the city. I made my change underground at Piccadilly, took the local to South Kensington Station. And there I came up at the surface again. And when I walked out, I stepped into a solid, opaque blanket of white fog. I could hear the traffic, the rumble of the city around me. I could hear footsteps, an occasional muffled voice. But I could see almost nothing. This is how a blind man feels then. The only objects of relief from that dreadful enveloping gray wall were an occasional blur of yellow from a street lamp. Or a motor car headlight. A glimmering patch from some big lighted shop window here and there. And the figures. The figures of other people passing by. Dark. And floating. And indistinct. Or were they people? Might they not be those phantom figures again? Just like the ones that haunted me before I went into the sanitarium. Ghostly, blurred figures of dead comrades from Dunkirk and Abbeville. In the mud of Belgium. Ah, here comes another one. I can hear his cane tapping. Look closely now, make sure. There. He looked real enough, didn't he? They are real, I'm positive of it, and I'm not alone. They're all around me. But even as I told myself this, the old panic was growing inside. Here now, old fellow, you've got to get hold of yourself. Next one comes along, speak up. Speak up to him. Ask him the way to Molly Place. Ask, can you put me on the trail to Molly Place? Just like that. She'll see. Here now. Here he comes. Ask away. Beg pardon. Can you put me I on... I say, is this right to the tube station, do you know? I'm utterly lost. I want South Kensington. Why, why yes, I have just come from there. Straight along, I think. Oh, thanks, awfully. Oh, but I say, can you put me on the trail to Molly Place? He's gone. 
Well, no matter. He was real enough. He spoke up like a real person, all right. Maybe the next... Oh, oh I say, I beg your pardon. Oh, I'm frightfully sorry. I, I didn't see you and you standing still. Oh, I'm afraid I, I must be lost. Can you direct me to Morley, please? Oh, dear, I, I think you've missed your turning. You, you'd have to double back a street and maybe two and take the first turn to the right and go one street and then double back two and then left. I say thanks. That was first right, and then... She's gone. Disappeared. Like a ghost. The panic was rising in me. They were real people, yes, but they appeared and disappeared so disconcertingly quickly. And when I turned off down the main street, there, there were fewer of them, I... Turned again. And again. But I couldn't remember the directions. Suddenly I I knew I was lost. And now I was in some little backwater where passers by were rare. Where no one came. Where I was alone. Now the panic swept over me. I stumbled on a curb, my cane swept empty air. I fell to the icy pavement. I was shaking so that I couldn't rise to my feet. I crawled across the open space of the street on my hands and knees. Only when I crossed the curb and felt a warm wall could I stand up again. And then I stood there, shaken and frantic. Molly Place must be very close, the little Red Cross girl waiting with her warm fire and hot tea. But where? Where? Suddenly, in the yellow blur of the nearest street lamp, a faint darkening of the fog caught my eye. It was not a figure this time. Only the shadow of the pole grotesquely magnified. No. No, it moved. It came toward me. It was a figure. A woman. It came right up to me. Fear gripped me, and then I remembered the doctor's advice. Don't ignore them. Treat them as real. Speak to them and go with them. You will soon prove their unreality then. And they will leave you. And so I gripped the wall behind me and spoke to her. Lost your way like myself, haven't you, ma'am? Do you know where we are at all? Morley Place I'm looking for. Where am I? Well, I say you're more frightened than I am. Uh, may I help you? I'm lost. I've lost myself. I can't find my way back. Same here. I'm terrified of being alone, too. I've had shell shock, you know. Uh, let's go together. We'll find our way together, eh? Who are you? Name's O'Reilly, Canadian. I'm going to have tea with a friend in Morley Place. Uh, what's your address? Do you know the name of the street here? I came out suddenly. Unexpectedly. I can't find my way home again. Just when I was expecting him oh, to... I say steady, ma'am. He may be there now. Waiting for me at this very moment. And I can't get back. Have you any idea of the direction, ma'am? Any at all? We'll go together. Listen. Uh... I hear him calling. I remember. Wait, ma'am. Wait. Don't leave me here alone. I'm going with you. Wait. She was running fast through the fog. It was all I could do to keep up with her. But I felt I must not lose her or my own nerves would go to pieces. How she found her way in the fog, running so quickly, I didn't know, but I kept close on her heels, running hard. I could smell a faint perfume in the air trailing behind her. A faintly familiar odor, but not pleasant. And then suddenly she stopped and turned into the gate, so suddenly that I almost bumped into her. Oh, <laughs> is this in? You found it then. Uh, may I come in with you for a moment? Perhaps you'll let me telephone my doctor. Doctor? Yes, Dr. Henry at the Army Hospital. I'm in his care, you know. 
My home is somewhere here. I'm near it. I must get back in time. For him. I must. He's coming to me. I I say, ma'am. But she turned and walked toward the house. For a moment I hesitated. This woman was acting very strangely. But no matter, she was at least real and I needed help. Quickly I followed her up the steps across the porch. The door was ajar. She slipped through and I followed into the dark house. It was so dark inside I couldn't see anything at first. I, I stopped, groping. But she went on quickly, easily, as if she knew the way. She was ignoring me completely. I heard her steps cross the hall, go up the stairs quickly. I waited and listened. She walked along the hall upstairs. Where? Oh, where is it? I must find her. Now the hair on my neck felt as if it were rising. Was she, after all, another of my figures? Was she unreal, too? I heard her open a door upstairs, go in and close it after her. Then there was silence, profound silence. And I was alone in a dark, unoccupied house. The white-covered furniture in the hallway loomed like ghosts. And there was no sound. I felt my panic coming back. But she was upstairs. And at least she was companionship. my way up the stairs, along the upstairs hall. There was no sign of life. Where are you? I want to help you. Which room are you in? There was no answer. But as I put my hand on a table to steady myself, I, I felt something. It was a candle stump. With a gasp of relief, I took it up and lighted it. Now I could see a little. One by one, I tried the bedrooms. They were dusty and unused. The furniture covered, the mattresses rolled up on the beds. They were all alike. Until I opened the last door. Instantly, I knew this was it. I smelled the perfume. Only now I recognized it, understood why it was unpleasant to me. It was the smell of a hospital, of chloroform. And there was the woman... Her dark fur coat wrapped around her, her jewels just showing at the neck. And she was stretched out on the bed, motionless. Instantly, I... I knew she was dead. In the next instant, I thought I would go mad. The blood on her face was congealing. Her skin was cold. I knew then that she'd been dead for an hour at least. And that what I saw in the street was not real. This was the shock that Dr. Henry had warned me to avoid. And what happened then? Why, well, I, I heard the door open up downstairs. Someone came in. The one she'd been expecting, no doubt. And suddenly I, I realized the, the danger of my being found there beside a woman who had obviously been murdered. Well, I slipped into another bedroom, and when he went into that room with her, I slipped out and crept downstairs. I stumbled and he heard me, and I came out. I ran down and out into the fog, into the street, and away. How long I ran or where, I don't know. When I was exhausted, I, I stopped. And then you came and found me. Well, what do you think? <laughs> Tall tale, isn't it? Yes. Strange, but not incredible. 
I see no reason to disbelieve anything you've told me. Things equally remarkable, equally incredible, happen every day in a big city. I know from personal experience. Oh, I could give you many instances. But the woman, I saw her, and yet she was already dead. Such things are hard to explain. Perhaps cannot be explained, except, of course, your mind in its present state may still play tricks on you. Perhaps you saw a woman in the fog and followed her. You may have missed her and only thought you saw her going to that house. But what about the dead woman? She was real enough. Perhaps, perhaps not. She, too, may have been just fantasy. You may never have left the street. No. No, I'm sure of that, at least. I must believe it. She was real, and the man who came up the stairs was real. If I didn't believe that, I think I should go mad. Yes, perhaps that is important. Then, let me see. Have you any proof of what you saw? Something, perhaps, that you carried away with you? None. But wait, I left something there, my hat. I left it on the bed beside her body. My initials were in it. Ah. And so if it was all real, I shall be getting a visit from the police one day soon. Perhaps. And then I'll know. And I'll be charged with murder. I don't think so. You think the police would believe this fantastic story? As I told you. Many strange things happen in a city like this. For instance, I knew of a similar case many years ago. Strangely similar case. Almost a coincidence. Would you like to hear it? I... Yes, I, I suppose so. It happened during the last war. A colleague of mine, a surgeon now dead, married a charming girl, young and beautiful. He was wealthy and they lived comfortably for many years. They seemed happy together. Then came the war and he went overseas. His income was stopped, of course. The big house closed. His wife found life not so pleasant as before. And somehow she blamed her new hardships on him. You see, she was devoid of imagination without any power for sacrifice. But she was still young and beautiful. The inevitable young man came along to console her. He was rich. They planned to go off somewhere. Only by chance, the husband came back from overseas suddenly... Just in the nick of time. Well, he should have let her go. He was well rid of her, I'd say. Well rid of her, yes. Only he decided to make the riddance final. He decided to kill her and her lover. You see, he loved her. He planned the time and place carefully. They met he knew in the big house, now closed. He waited for them there. The plan failed, however, in one important detail. She came at the appointed time, but without her lover. She found death waiting for her. Oh, completely painless death. But the lover did not come. The door had been left open for him. The house was deserted and it was a foggy night like tonight. But he did not come. Instead, a stranger came. I... And where was the... Surgeon, all this time, waiting outside, concealed in the fog. He saw the man go in, and he followed him to kill him. But the man was a stranger. He came in by chance, like you, to shelter from the fog. I think that I should... Why, uh, what is the matter, sir? Why, I really must be going. Oh, of course, if you wish. Thank you for your... Kindness and hospitality. Oh, it's been a pleasure, young man. I enjoyed your story... Although I confess I expected 
one a little different. Uh, your coat. Thank you. I'll walk with you to the door and give you the directions. Ah, you're in luck. I think the fog's lifting a bit. Doctor, may I ask? Your friend, the surgeon, was he ever caught? Ah, that's the part of the story I don't know. He was clever enough so that I doubt it. Unless he told somebody, made a confession. I see. And even so, unless that other person had some proof. Oh, by the way, you, you can't walk about in the fog without a hat. Here, uh, it's an extra one of mine. You needn't trouble to return it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I went out of his consulting room with a hat on my head. In ten minutes, I was at the tube station. It was only there that I permitted myself to take off the hat and look at it. It was my own. The hat I had left on the bed beside the dead woman. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And tonight brought you Confession by Algernon Blackwood. Adapted for radio by John Dunkel. With Bill Conrad as O'Reilly, Ramsey Hill as the doctor, and Peggy Weber as the woman in the fog. Music was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week... You were trapped in the dark maze of the native quarter of Mozambique. A dead man at your feet, the police closing in around you. And beside you is a girl with whom you must escape. Next week, we escape with Percival Gibbon's fast-moving adventure, Second Class Passenger. Good night, then, until this same time next week, when again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Our Miss Brooks, followed by Nero Wolf. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.